And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and here to talk some U.S. soccer with me today is a man who always qualifies for the knockout round, Mr. Backheeled himself. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Yeah, once again, Taylor, I'm working on getting my name legally changed. I, yep. I feel like we have a lot of name-changing intros. I need to, I need to get that over the line um, because <laughs> it's really important. It is my new identity now. And yes, like the U.S. Women's National Team, I do tend to qualify for knockout rounds of tournaments as long as those tournaments are, are ping-pong related. <laughs> That's good. All right, so we can we can qualify Joe for the uh, the Concacaf Ping Pong Championship. I'm, I'm glad we know that. I'm glad we know that the United States will advance in the Concacaf Championship. Uh, they won their final group stage game uh, last night. They moved to the knockout round and a semifinal clash against Costa Rica, who finished second in their group after a 2-0 loss to Canada. Canada playing Jamaica in the other semifinal. So a decent chance we end up getting USA-Canada in that final. For the United States, the win over Mexico... I would say important, obviously. Wins usually are. Uh, For me, at least, I want to kind of own this up front. I thought it was a slightly concerning game. It was maybe the most concerning game I've seen from Vlatko's team, and that includes the kind of struggles at the Olympics. Uh, Maybe I was just in a mood. So, Joe, uh, I'm guessing you're going to have a slightly calmer perspective. Starting off, if you're going to give this one a letter grade, what would you go with for that performance last night? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a whole lot higher on this performance than you are, Taylor. I'd I'd give that performance like a a D plus or a wow, C minus. Okay. I, I okay. thought it was. I don't think it was as troubling just because of the context as some of those Olympics mm-hmm. games that that the U.S. had last summer. But man, I, I wrote about this. It felt eerily like one of those games just for the U.S. Fortunately, with lower stakes, right? I mean, that's that's the whole deal here. It was disorganized in the attack, sloppy touches. I don't think there were many individual players who had particularly good performances, and the ones that did I thought were closer to the back, basically just Naomi Gurma, who I thought was pretty good, and everybody else was kind of meh, either because they didn't play well on their own, or because I don't think Vlatko put them in good spots to actually set them up to succeed. So, yeah, man, I I, I thought last night was brutal. Going into that game, especially with how much Mexico had struggled, I thought the table was set for the U.S. to go in and really gain some momentum headed into the knockout rounds, and yeah, Christy Mewis gets that late goal. The U.S. ends up undefeated in Group A. All that stuff is good. The result is good. But, man, I I thought their performance was rough. Taylor, if you're going to give it a letter grade, are you in in my zone? Are you a little higher? Where are you sitting? I probably would have been higher, uh, mostly just because I'm uncomfortable going too low. But I think you are brave to do so and probably correct to do so, Joe. Because the reason why this one was more concerning to me than some of those Olympic games, number one, the Olympics are done. We know how that went. It didn't go great. But that was also relatively early into Vlatko as national team manager. And we knew there was sort of not yet that transition from the old guard to the new guard that he was still kind of figuring out the team a little bit. And so I I had less or fewer issues with it then. But to see this this team against Mexico last night, I agree with you. It looked like one of those games. And this is a team that is starting to get younger. And there are newer faces doing newer things. It, it was sort of a moment of, ooh, that issue might still be there. And, and I think... We should note that this is a, a dead rubber game. The United States was already, I think it would have taken a massive goal difference swing to, to, for them to finish yeah. second, but they were always going to win this group after those first two wins, and it's a Mexico team playing at home. They're fighting for something. There's still a chance that they could have finished third, and I think that would have put them in a position to qualify for some things or potentially qualify. So I can see how the United States maybe not going like Full, full force from the start, Mexico up for it from the start. That can be a recipe for a bad game for the United States. Yeah. 
But with that sort of disclaimer out of the way, I agree with you that I think from the jump, the way kind of Vlatko positioned some of these players, and particularly that formation, I don't think put the United States on the strongest foot with the most kind of chemistry and consistency about them. No, I'm totally with you there, Taylor. I want to run through the lineup quickly just as we get into maybe some of the tactical things that we noticed in this game. So it was Casey Murphy in goal, and it really does seem like she's the goalkeeper for this team. She started two of the three games so far. So it seems like Vlatko is going with her as the number one, and I haven't seen anything that would really indicate that that needs to change. Center back was Naomi Gurma getting her second straight start, and she was next to Becky Sauerbund in this game in that back four. It was Kelly O'Hara on the right and Emily Sana on the left, although those two players did a fair bit of switching, especially in the first first half. They yeah. uh, they were swapping sides a little bit and, and seemed to be fine and comfortable on both sides. Then you had Andy Sullivan at the six, Ashley Sanchez and Lindsey Horan filling out that midfield, Midge Purse on the right, mostly Sophia Smith on the left, mostly, and then Alex Morgan up top. Alex Morgan is the only true number nine left on this roster as well. Ashley Hatch has a little bit of an injury and has been replaced by defensive midfielder Sam Coffey in this squad. So Coffey was one of the alternates. So Morgan is, is really the only de facto number nine in this group going forward. So I'd expect her to get multiple starts against Costa Rica. And then if the U.S. beats Costa Rica in the final, probably against Canada. Taylor, you mentioned the tactics there. And I, I kind of ran through that. And it sounds like your standard 4-3-3 shape. And in some moments from the U.S., it was. Some moments defensively, they pressed high in that 4-3-3. Other moments in possession, you had Andy Sullivan back as a lone number six and Haran and Sanchez higher in between the lines, kind of in that forward line or just a little bit deeper than that forward line. But in a lot of other moments, it was Lindsey Haran dropping deep on the left to form basically a double pivot with Andy Sullivan, leaving Ashley Sanchez high, almost even next to Alex Morgan, either as a number 10 right underneath or just to the side of, or just basically in the same line as Alex Morgan. And you end up with this weird, either heavily lopsided 4-3-3 in moments, or you end up with this basically 4-2-3-1, if you want to be a little more simplistic in how you think about this, with players... In positions they've played before, Haran played in a double pivot for Lyon, or she did, and Ashley Sanchez plays as a number 10 for the Washington Spirit. But man, the, the positional alignment and some of the gaps between players I thought was a huge issue. You, you go through, and I pulled out a screen grab uh, for this in the backfield article I wrote last night. At times in possession for the U.S., Taylor, I'm sure you saw this too, there's this massive gap between the back four and the double pivot, so that, that back six, really, if you want to think about it that way, and the front four, which just includes Ashley Sanchez in no man's land as this number 10 pseudo second striker not nearly getting enough touches on the ball, there's this massive gap and it just felt like over and over again instead of dropping players or pushing Haran higher more consistently and dropping Sanchez and pushing the fullbacks up to help bridge that gap, the U.S. just played with this this dual they played with two separate groups of players, and I didn't feel like there was any continuity between those players. It was clear that they were trying to come out and play that very lopsided 4-3-3 or that 4-2-3-1. That was clearly an instruction from Vlatko with where players were popping up most consistently, but it just it just didn't work, and I thought for sure there was going to be an adjustment at halftime, and that adjustment didn't really come. The adjustments were the subs, and, and man, I, I just have so many frustrations about this game and, and, and how how slowly changes were made by Vlatko and basically weren't made until different players came on the field. And it it was rough, Taylor. It really was rough. And that's where I feel, I agree it was really rough. And that's where I feel like this was sort of one of those Olympic games that you had this back four, back six, uh, like much, much deeper. And I think it's Alex Morgan sort of hanging on the last defender, wanting to make those runs behind, wanting to stretch the defense. You've got two uh, pacey attackers alongside her in Sophia Smith and Midge Purse. But I think then you end up getting this like very stretched team that that front line wants to go direct. I saw so many yeah. moments when players were were like waving the hands, calling for big switches or big crosses, and that's great when they're on. But it felt like there were times when it was just like, "Hey, play me the ball. Hey, play me the ball. I want the ball in space." And they weren't really on. They weren't really wide open. It wasn't this like that big switch, and now you've got forty yards of space. It was like, no, there's a person within five yards of you. You just want the ball to go at people, which is a great attitude for an attacker. But it seems like we then get this like differing identity within the team. Of there's like half the team trying to build out and keep possession and and kind of get people into the right positions as you move the ball up the pitch. And then there's the other half of the team that wants to go vertical and then wants to hit a bunch of crosses. And I'm going to assume that that's not the team deciding that. It feels like it's a breakdown in the instructions on the tactical side of things. I, I And I wished, to your point, Joe, that at halftime we did see a, just a few 
Just a yeah. little bit of tinkering of maybe Lindsay Horan takes up that position in between Sanchez and Sullivan, and then you have that link a little bit more. Or maybe the wingers uh, drop deeper. They were doing that at times uh, in on the defensive side of things. When Mexico would get a free kick or possession inside the U.S. half, it was almost more of a 4-4-2 with um, Sanchez joining Alex Morgan as the front yeah. two. And I feel like that gives you a stronger kind of base shape to then build out of because you've got numbers around the ball. And as soon as you don't, it just felt like it was route one. It was a lot of direct play. There wasn't a ton of subtlety to it. And I think the United States, for as talented and strong as they can be, also is a team that can thrive playing very subtle possession soccer, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's there's this clip of the U.S. against Mexico from a while back that was making the rounds again on Twitter, and it's this beautiful bit of buildup. Uh, it was a game on ESPN, uh, maybe maybe 2021, and it's it's just this beautifully technical play from back to front. And I saw that clip floating around on Twitter again today, and, and realized, man, this team can do so much. That right? the quality in this team is so high. There are so many talented players in this group, and that's why it's so frustrating to watch this U.S. team at times under Vlaco, not just last night, go out there and, and play hopeful long balls. Taylor, Taylor Korniak comes on late in the second half yeah. as the number nine, as the <laughs> ultimate symbol that the U.S. had given up on playing soccer in this game. Not that Taylor Korniak can't play soccer. She's very good with the ball at her feet. But she was coming in as a forward to just be a target in the box. And that's really how the U.S.'s goal uh, finds that how the U.S. find the back of the net. It's a bit of a, a recycled corner kick. Ashley Sanchez shows some good composure on the end line and cuts it back and ends up with Taylor Korniak, and she actually plays a ball with her feet over to the back post, and Christy Mewis just kind of bodies it in after a little bit of a scramble session. That's how the U.S. get their goal. They just gave up on playing soccer for the last maybe 30 minutes of this game. I mean, you could argue kind of from, from the opening whistle, but especially in the second half, Mexico were down to 10 players. They were down a player, and the U.S. said, yeah, we, we don't think we can really break you down. We are just going to pump balls into the box and hope for the best. And that is just so disheartening to watch from this team. I know I know this is kind of a privileged conversation to have. Like, like all of this is a very privileged conversation to have, recognizing who the U.S. is playing against at these tournaments, some of the issues that they've had in the Federation, even thinking about Mexico. This is supposed to be a really big and influential tournament for them, and they failed, right? They're not going to the Olympics, and some of the pictures watching them after this game are, are really moving. Like they're, they're heart-wrenching to watch. There's a picture of, I believe, Reyes and Ashley Sanchez embracing, and I think they have some UCLA ties. And it, it hurts, right? You feel for Mexico. You feel for Haiti and all the issues they've had. You feel for Jamaica and some of the turnover there. This U.S. team has so much ability and just should be so much more than they are. And I was hoping that after that Jamaica game that we would see some improvement. But you come into a game like this against Mexico, coming off of a really strong performance against Jamaica, and it, it honestly makes me question the direction of this federation. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty bent out of shape about this. It's not the end of the world. The U.S. can still go on and win this thing, and I think they very much might do that. They should still be the favorites to qualify, to get that auto-qualification spot for the Olympics by winning this whole tournament. But, man, how much good soccer have we seen from this U.S. team under Vlako Andonovsky? And how much really bad, mediocre, questionable soccer have we seen from this team? I... I I don't think things are looking all that good for Vlatko right now. And that is, this, we just shouldn't be having this conversation. We don't need to be having this conversation. And all it takes is the U.S. playing a little bit more convincingly. And we just have not seen that on any sort of consistent basis under Vlatko and Donofsky. Agreed. And and this is a good case of things can be two things a couple times over, because it might well be that the United States ends up winning this tournament. And then we look back on that as like, ah, it was just like, you know, not a very good performance against Mexico. Sure. But I think simultaneously it can be that the United States wins a tournament. But as we watch the Euros and we see some very dominant performances over there, I think it's fair to look then at these performances and think, why isn't the United States able to kind of play the same game consistently against weaker opposition. Uh, Arsenine, uh, at Arsenine underscore on Twitter. Joe, I don't know if you saw this one. Uh, last night it came in. Think about how livid Joe is, uh, or must be right now, that Vlaco just went cross-mania by subbing in Korniak at center <laughs> forward. Uh, I thought that would I speak didn't to see your that. heart, Joe. Uh, but to your point about sort of just, like, abandoning the game plan and going very cross-heavy and just sort of going, get the ball in the box and see what happens, I'd I, I pause for a moment and think back to the very, very, very bad game the United, United States men played under Greg Berhalter when they lost to Mexico 3-0. And we've talked about that many, many times on this show. But for people who uh, don't remember that one, that's the one where the United States kept trying to build out of the back. They kept kind of sticking to that identity. And they got 
trounced. They got pressured all over the pitch. They couldn't really build. They didn't really quite have it down. And he said after the game... That, like, these are the games that are important to learning how to play, that you can't just do it against teams that you're going to destroy. It's teams that are going to cause you a problem that you've got to figure it out. And so I'm happy with this result. And at the time, I was livid. I thought that was the most tone-deaf thing he could have said. And maybe it still was. But the idea there being that even if you're not getting the win, even if you're not getting a good result, sticking with the identity and figuring it out and letting your players yeah. sort of understand what the pressure is going to be, what the breakdowns might be, and then how to solve them is so important to then play stronger opposition who can limit you, but you've kind of figured it out. You have some dry runs. You've had some dress rehearsals for those bigger games. But if you, in a moment when you're up a player and chasing the game or trying to make something happen sort of abandon the game plan and just go cross heavy bodies in the box make something happen that doesn't really help you develop it just relies on overall technical ability or like superior physical ability and having one like more player than the other team i don't think it allows you to learn a lot in that moment. So maybe it's the U.S. getting a result late, and that's what's important. But for me, there are other things that could have been learned from this game against Mexico. Yeah, Becky Sauerbrunn talked with Jenny Chu after the game on CBS, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Jenny was asking her some questions. And, and basically, one of the comments that Sauerbrunn made was about how this game provided adversity for the U.S. And, and that's true, right? Home crowd, night game. This is the first game that actually felt like a real tournament game because you had a bunch of Mexico fans turn up, and it was a good atmosphere. And I think in that way, it did test the U.S. And it made me think, Taylor, of your question to me way back before this tournament started about the value of playing this in Central America and, and questioning, you know, does the U.S. actually, is it better for the U.S. than playing games at home? And I think in some ways, yes, it is. It's better experience for them. But I couldn't help but think about, as Sauerbrunn was talking about this adversity, doesn't it feel like manufactured adversity? Taylor, right, I mean, the, the quality advantage that the U.S. has over Mexico and the quality advantage they have over every single team in this tournament, you know, you can talk about how much adversity and how much you learn and grow from this one no win. And I don't doubt that that's true. I don't doubt that that's real growth. But I also think about how much better the U.S. could have played and how little adversity there needed to be in a game like this. And I think about, okay, what happens at the World Cup? What happens if the U.S. does get to the Olympics or when the U.S. gets to the Olympics, whatever that's going to be? You know, are are you manufacturing adversity then? Because your margins against France or against England or against the Netherlands or against whoever are going to be much smaller. And your window to overcome that manufactured adversity gets much tighter and, and much more difficult to squeeze through. So... I don't know. That that comment has stuck with me since last night thinking about this U.S. team and how much harder they make life for themselves. That's that's one comment that I thought was interesting last night. The other was a quote from Blacko in the press conference. Yeah. And so <laughs> apparently he was asked if he if he's satisfied with the development of the U.S. women's national team looking ahead to the World Cup. And, and this is what he said. I have to say, if you ask me if we are ready to play in the World Cup tomorrow, we're probably not ready for it. But we are going to be ready in a year, absolutely. So I agree with Flacco. I, I mean, I think that's pretty clear right now that this U.S. team is probably not consistent enough or, or able to create enough on a regular basis to really go out and dominate a World Cup, which is kind of the bar for this team, or at least to make a really good run in a World Cup. But my question, Taylor, is why isn't the U.S. ready? Right, Vlaco's been in charge of this team for almost three years now, and I know 2020 was just a big, uh, a big loss for basically every national team in the world. The U.S. did play games in 2020. They played the last tournament before the world shut down, like the last soccer tournament that was being played at the time. And then they played games again towards the end of 2020 and uh, through 2021 into the Olympics, after the Olympics, through 2022, pre uh, W Championship friendlies, and then this tournament. They've had time. Vlaco's played so many games. I, I don't. I just don't buy, I guess I'm just really hesitant to accept many excuses around this team at the moment. And things, again, can get so much better in these next two games. And we might look back on this game and think, yeah, that really didn't matter. But the pattern that the U.S. is developing is is troubling. And I think the U.S. at this point should be ready to go play in a World Cup tomorrow. And the reality is Vlatko's right. They're not ready for that. Yeah. And and I think I can understand why after this result that we both were pretty unimpressed by, you can't just say like, yeah, we're ready for the World Cup. We're going to destroy everybody. You have right. to kind of moderate that a little bit. But it, it it is still begs the question of why is that the case when you have all this talent and you have as many games as they've played? So, Joe, let's do this. Let's take a, a break. Let's come back and talk about some of the issues that they need to figure out uh, in that next year to be ready. Let's also talk about maybe some of the positives from that win over Mexico. Uh, we will be back soon to do all of that. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. All right, Joe, let's talk about a year from now when the United States uh, is dominant, wins the World Cup, uh, beats everybody 5-0. <laughs> we all know that's going to happen. What do you think are the issues that, that, need, that most need to be sorted out between now and then? I will start you with one, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. A thing that I remain confused by is that number nine position. Apparently, U.S. national teams across the board are just going to be unsettled <laughs> at the number nine spot for very different reasons. For the U.S. Yes, very men, it's a sort of lack of options or a perceived lack of options. For the U.S. women, in my mind, it's that there are sort of two different player types, and I'm not sure they've decided which one they want to rely on. Because with Alex Morgan, and I will add, in the second half, she did a much better job of dropping in, being a little bit behind the other attacking players, linking play, doing some defensive work. But for the most part, especially in the first half, as I said earlier, stretching the line, looking for those runs in behind, kind of wanting to go direct, hand in the air for big crosses and big switches. And I think about then Katarina Macario and Ashley Hatch, who... I have seen Ashley Hatch, especially in this tournament, dropping much deeper, being the one who's sort of tasked with with dropping deep a la Jesus Ferreira on the men's side, linking play, finding space. And you can have different looks. You don't have to have everybody doing the exact same thing always. But those are such different approaches and require the rest of the team to sort of play very differently as a result. I would love if they could sort of set one way of playing in that way, at least to start to get everybody on the same page. And then you can have those little adjustments as you go or little uh, approaches to get the game can be varied. But I think you have to kind of settle on, is it going to be this way or that way? But I might be wrong, Joe. And that's why I turned it to you to say, is that a thing that you are concerned about? Or do you have fewer issues with what they're doing in the number nine spot? I honestly don't have a ton of concerns about that. Taylor, I hear what you're saying, and I think there is... You always want to be as clear as possible Joe when you're communicating instructions wrong. to your players. Cool. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I hope you got that in all caps, because um, <laughs> I, I definitely am wrong about a lot of stuff. I, I think... I think it is actually helpful to have number nines that can interpret the game differently. And if we're talking about a healthy Katarina Macario and Alex Morgan, those two players do interpret the game very, very differently. For me, with how the U.S. set up last night against Mexico, Macario would have been the perfect number nine to have in there. They desperately needed someone to bridge the gap. And I, I really don't know why that wasn't Ashley Sanchez, because if we do know something about Ashley Sanchez, it's that she loves to bridge the gap. Like She loves to drop deep. She loves to combine. She loves to get touches. Or, or not even drop deep, but drop between the lines and create in those really high-value spaces. And she just didn't do that last night, which, again, kind of takes me back to whatever tactical instruction she was given. Macario would have helped bridge that gap because she is like, she, she is a false nine and she is so good at dropping in, but she can also run in behind. She is just a brilliant player. She's one of the best players in the entire world. Having her involved against teams that are going to play more defensively is really valuable. In, in, in contrast to that, I also think having Alex Morgan in your back pocket as the, the second number nine on the depth chart, which is where I think she would go when Macario comes in. She gives you a plan B. So, so Taylor, I kind of think it's a middle ground of, of where you are and maybe where I am. You have a default game plan. You say Katarina Macario is our number nine. I think that's pretty much where Vlatko is right now, barring Alex Morgan continuing to be an unreal goal-scoring form in the NWSL for the foreseeable future. She is the number nine, and she can do a lot of that dropping in stuff, which allows the wingers to release and go in behind. That makes perfect sense to me. Alex Morgan then, let's say you're coming up against France or England or whoever, a game in a team where you're going to have a little bit less of the ball and you're going to spend more time in transition, which is really where this U.S. team thrives. Then maybe you rock with Alex Morgan and say, hey, get in behind. Yes, look when to check deep and look when we need help and build up. But your job is to play off the back shoulder and do what you do so well. To me, there's no issue with having that, that, uh, that contrast between number nine, number one, and number nine, number mm-hmm. two. I think it could end up being a useful thing, but I guess we'll find out. 
All right, th- that that's a very good point. And I think then to like thinking about it a little bit more, maybe I'm blaming the individual when you're right, we should be looking more broadly or I should be looking more broadly at the tactics because what I think was frustrating last night is that you're right. Like Alex Morgan can give you a different look. She can, she can be that second option. Katarina Macario seems very capable of, of doing the job that maybe was needed to be done last night. But then when you have your wide attackers, Purse and uh, Smith switching spots pretty, pretty regularly and like do, doing different things when they would, it, it just, it felt like there were, it didn't feel like it was tinkering. It felt like it was Vlatko asking different players to do different things to see how it worked. But when you're asking four different players to do four different things, you're going to get a team that's doing a couple different things simultaneously. Again, maybe I'm being more negative, but I, I think that was kind of a frustration for me. So maybe it's not just the Alex Morgan, the individual. It's more that, okay, fine, we can have Alex Morgan do something different, offer something different, but then the team almost has to be able to say, like, oh, like, target striker, we changed the game a little bit, we changed what we're doing. And, it, and instead, it just seemed like the United States continued to have different people doing different things. Yeah. Uh, and that then leads to a not very cohesive performance overall. And that leads right into the, the thing that I think the U.S. most needs to address before the World Cup, or potentially before the Olympics, or, or heck, even before Thursday, ideally, if they can, but I don't think that's <laughs> possible, is answering the question of what is your attacking identity? Because, Taylor, if I ask yep. you that question or if I ask yeah. myself that question, I'm drawing blanks. Yeah, okay, the, the one thing, was my the one thing I would you, say, Joe, by the way. Yeah, I mean, there, <laughs> there isn't one, right? The, the one thing I would yeah. say is the U.S. loves transition. And, and because of who they play in CONCACAF the vast majority of the time, they don't really get to play in transition all that much. Against France, against whoever, I keep drawing back these same teams, but against whoever is maybe at a higher level, the U.S. will get to play more in transition, and I think they probably end up looking at least a little bit better, even though we didn't get a ton of that at the Olympics, so, so maybe that's not exactly true. But man, if you think about when the U.S. has the ball and the other team is in some semblance of a defensive block, I don't, I don't really think this team has an, an attacking identity right now, an identity yeah. in possession, a clear idea of what they want to do. And it's difficult because I don't think it's impossible for them to get that. I just think back to the Jamaica game and how many good things there were in that game, right? I don't know that it's rocket science to get the U.S. playing some good soccer. I think Vlaco can do it. I think this team can get it together and really shine on Thursday and maybe again on Monday. And then after this at the World Cup and the Olympics, they can. The bar is not too high for this team. They can reach it and they can pull up and stand on the bar. They can do that stuff. But I think the U.S. needs to drill down exactly who they want to be in possession because I don't think being long ball heavy or being cross heavy is the best way to maximize this team's talent and really increase your odds of winning games against great teams. I think it's getting more control of the ball, controlling higher value spaces, the zone 14, getting the ball between the lines to Sanchez and Lavelle or whoever's in that space, getting the ball into the Man City zone, cutting it back, having a little bit more attacking diversity would go such a long way. I've been saying it since before this tournament started, and it just be, is becoming more and more clear that the U.S. needs to find out who they are with the ball, because until they do that, I'm, I'm not convinced that this team is winning any trophies under Blacko. We often talk about how formations aren't as important as maybe they seem because they're very fluid, they can change. But with that said, Joe, is what a, one of the things you'd like to see them do when it comes to establishing that attacking identity, move away from that 4-2-3-1 and just stick with a 4-3-3? I, I would like the U.S. to stick with the 4-3-3. I'm not, I'm not ever totally opposed to the 4-2-3-1. Just the, the way we saw it look last night was so unfortunate. It, it was just so poor. And it, it, again, it wasn't like this hard and fast 4-2-3-1 all the time. There was some fluidity. We saw the 4-3-3 along the way. But just the execution and where the players were positioned and what responsibilities it put on specific players, I thought was was really bad. So yeah, that version of the four two three one, I don't really ever care to see again. That version of the fluid possession shape, whatever you want to call it, I don't care to see again. I think the four two three has a ton of potential with this team. I really like the wide combinations you get between the fullbacks, staying a little deeper, but but having some interior passes available to them to the eights, and then the eights switching and rotating with the wide midfielders or the wingers, and then running in behind. There's so many different looks you get out of that, and I feel like it's a much uh, more well balanced shape for this particular U.S. team and those profiles. I'm not 100% married to that forever, but given the choice tomorrow or or really Thursday between the 4-2-3-1 ish that we saw that we saw against uh, that we saw against Mexico last night and the 4-3-3 that we've seen the U.S. play in before, it's it's an easy choice for that 4-3-3. 
In that 4-2-3-1 last night against Mexico, we had uh, Sullivan and we had Haran as your two in the double pivot. I felt like Haran uh, was not put in a very good position or maybe just it didn't play to her strengths because it felt like she was the one who was supposed to pop out and go close down if there was a Mexican player who, who showed a little bit deeper, who picked up the ball maybe 10 yards or 15 yards or 20 yards in front of that double pivot. Haran seemed to be the one to close, but I, I, I don't know if she was carrying an injury or just had some fitness issues. She did not seem particularly fleet of foot last night. And at least twice in the first half, when she goes to close, she overpursues, gets turned, and now it's Sullivan dealing with a basically 3v1 through the middle of the pitch. And Mexico not able to take advantage. Let's just keep going with France, Joe. France feel like they will be able to take advantage of that. And I don't think Lindsay Rand on the 4-2-3-1 makes as much sense. If you are sort of custom creating a position for Lindsay Horan, what does it look like? What would you say are the biggest strengths she has? How do you sort of put her in a spot to actually shine? I don't mind Turan dropping a little bit deeper at times in possession. I think you could you could cut back the number of times that happens, but you get Horan on the ball. She had some really nice line-breaking passes last night. There was some good stuff, and she can pull out some of those balls from deep. You also want to take advantage of her crashing the box a little bit. You want to take advantage of her ability in the air. You can do all of those things. Really, you, you want a healthy Lindsay Horan. It just doesn't seem like we've gotten to see a, a full-strength Horan in this tournament. So I, I, I don't know. I, I wish at this point we'd maybe seen a little bit less of her, but then there's issues with Andy Sullivan, which I'd like to talk about in just a second. I think I think you want to let Horan find space. You want to let her drop a little bit deeper, but I don't think you want her to drop that deep. You you want her to be a little further forward to get touches in, in better spots, and we just didn't see that last night. Taylor, can I can I take us to Andy Sullivan for a second? I would love because I, I think I think you focused on on Haran maybe a little bit in that midfield, and I focused more yeah. on Sullivan last night, who I thought really struggled, and, and maybe really? it was a, a reason why the U.S. looked so poor in possession, and she also had some of those issues in, in defense and in, in transition specifically. She loses a duel in midfield in the fifth minute. Uh, there's a, a poor pass to Sonnet in the 18th minute that's too far back that, that forces Sonnet to lose some of her momentum. She's dispossessed in the 21st minute. She gets done in midfield again in the 35th minute. I, I, there's a lot more of those kinds of moments. I, I don't think Sullivan's had the best tournament for the U.S. And, and maybe another thing as we look forward to big tournaments for the U.S., at least one, if not two, over the next year or two, is figuring out what that number six spot looks like. Is that going to be Juilliard's? Does she come back and reclaim that spot? Is it Andy Sullivan? If it is, I think we need to see a lot more from her before I, I really feel confident in that. Is it someone like Sam Coffey? Do we even see Sam Coffey get on the field for the U.S. in the knockout rounds? Is there another player in the NWSL or elsewhere that can do that job because every time I've watched Sullivan, especially in this tournament, I know she's only gotten a couple of starts, but I just have not been impressed. And it feels like she's maybe not the answer at that spot, or at least hasn't shown it yet in Haran. I'm not convinced is either. I just don't know exactly what that looks like. But a better performance out of Andy Sullivan last night would have helped the U.S. a lot. And I think the U.S. needs more from her going forward. Yeah, it was telling to me that uh, when you're replacing Ashley Hatch or when Vlatko replaces Ashley Hatch, uh, he replaces her with a defensive midfielder in Sam Coffey. That does say to me that maybe he wants to see who else can come in and, and try that spot and, and ideally thrive in that spot. Sam Coffey, 23, zero caps so far, would be a kind of big moment if she were able to break through and, and get some starts and have some strong performances. But I think, yeah, we still have plenty of people uh, not involved in this team that could uh, potentially potentially be in that same role. Julia, you mentioned even Sam Mewis, maybe. So I think there's there's still going to be a lot of variation to the way this team plays uh, as we like bridge that one year and hopefully put together a very consistent, cohesive team. Uh, Joe, final couple questions for you from this game against Mexico. Uh, we've we focused a lot on maybe the players that didn't rise to the occasion, how the formation didn't quite work or the approach didn't quite work. Were there any players that did stand out to you in a positive way? I'm guessing there are two specific names that will be said. There are two specific names. I'm mm-hmm. curious if we're thinking about the same people. So I'll start with Naomi Gurma, yep. who I thought was very good. Uh, she she is still very new to the national team. She's very new to pro soccer. She's playing a first season with the San Diego Wave in the NWSL. And she's looked calm. She's looked composed. I think she's looked like a real veteran in this tournament so far in her two starts. One against Jamaica, who didn't really test the U.S. a ton. And same with Mexico. You know, I, I've been kind of griping about this U.S. team, but to be fair to them, they didn't give up a ton of really good chances against Mexico. They were maybe a couple more than, than should have been given. 
But overall, they're still defensively dominant in all these games. And Naomi Gurma was a big part of that. She had a couple of really nice defensive sequences, good reads. She reads the game very quickly. And, and she just elevates this U.S. back line in a real way, I think. So I, I really enjoyed her performance, and I would like to continue to see her at this tournament. I think my my preferred center back pairing at this point is Alana Cook and Naomi Gurma. I don't think Vlako will take Becky Sauerbrunn off the field, but I think I'm kind of ready to say that it's time for this new guard in the center back spot. So that's one. And the other is Mitch Purse, who I didn't end up writing about a ton yesterday, but I think she has been consistently dangerous in this tournament in a way that maybe none of the other U.S.'s wingers have. I don't think Sophia Smith was great again last night. I thought she was fine, but sloppy and a little wasteful at times. Still very dangerous and had a couple of highlight, highlight real worthy moments. But Purse, man, she has this incredible drive forward in the 43rd minute where she pretty much just goes coast to coast. And every time I think, how are you still running? I would be keeled over on the sideline and remembering that I'm not a professional athlete. She, she can separate. She can create a little bit. I've really enjoyed Mitch Purse for me. Taylor, she's one of the biggest winners so far of this tournament, certainly one of the U.S.'s biggest winners of this group stage. She's locked in at least the second uh, second spot in the right winger depth chart, and, and I think she's maybe the third winger in the entire pool right now after Smith and Pugh, and I'm not convinced that she can't shoot a little bit higher given some of the other performances we've seen in this tournament. Who, who Taylor, who were you thinking of as, as the two players? It was those two. Uh, and then the other, the only other one I had to add as maybe part, like a, a positive, if not a great performance, I would say sure. Ashley Sanchez. Yeah. Because yeah. she is just so creative on the ball, and I really enjoy how basically she's the type of player that if someone has like popped up in a pocket of space kind of out of nowhere, it was routinely sure. Ashley Sanchez. And that, it's, like, it's just one of those you keep, I kept making that same note of like, oh, Sanchez gets on the ball in space. Oh, Sanchez pops up out wide in space. Like she, she seems to have a really good eye for being able to find those little gaps and then get into them and then importantly get on the ball in those spaces and have defenders collapse or not collapse and then she can create from there uh but I I thought though it was sort of she was too high at times I think like partnering alongside Alex Morgan leaving that big gap through the middle I think that certainly didn't help the U.S.'s possession and their build-up and they're able to kind of just find that consistency through the attacking third but I think she still offers you so much, and I saw so many moments of just tight control and even just little smart decisions. Like, it's such a minor thing, but in the second half, the uh, there's a ball rolling out for a corner, and she is, like, in the vicinity of it, and she continues her run knowing that she's not going to get there, but she does it to just sort of control the ball, put it in the corner spot, and then she goes and assumes her, like, like assumes her position where she needs to be for the corner. And even just little things like that, she's just hyper-aware of everything around her so that the corner can be retaken really quickly. Quickly, and that ends up being not that moment, but later on, it's a relatively quickly taken corner short for Megan Rapino that ends up leading to the chaos that leads to the goal. So I think those moments can be the difference makers, and I think Ashley Sanchez very much capable of being a difference maker for this team. So some some good performances then, some positives to take away from this game. We would assume. There will be more positives uh, in the game against Costa Rica, but if not, we will certainly be talking about that one. Joe, is there anything in particular you would like to see in that semifinal against Costa Rica? Any players, any approaches, or maybe just a win? Uh, A win, first and foremost, but I I would like to see the U.S. just look better and calmer and more cohesive with the ball. They're going to get a lot of the ball again. It's the same story we've seen for every single game in this tournament so far and the two Columbia games leading up to it and a bunch of the games in the past. I want to see better play in in possession. I also would love to see the... I would love to see Sanchez and Lavelle start together. I'd love to see Gurma start too. And thinking about that number six spot... I either want to see Sam Coffey come in and get a look because none of the other six options have impressed, or I'd like to see Lindsey Horan. I don't think Horan is great in that role, but at this point I think she's maybe a better option than Sullivan, and she was the six in that game against Jamaica. So if you're looking to try to carry any momentum from the best performance of the tournament so far for the U.S., maybe that's the trio you go for. I don't have a ton of answers in that spot right now, but those are a few things, both both macro and, and maybe micro personnel stuff that I'd like to see on Thursday. Would you have any issues with Christy Mewis as the six? Uh, no, not really. I, in terms of trying things out, yeah, I didn't even think about her. She comes on in this game and plays a six and has done that in the past for Vlatko. So, yeah, maybe Mewis is, is certainly more likely, I think, to start than Coffee. Someone other than, than Sullivan, it's harsh to say, but I think that would be my preference right now. 
All right. Well, that game, uh, USA versus Costa Rica, it's the first semifinal, 6 p.m. Uh, that is Thursday night, and then Canada-Jamaica to follow at 9 p.m. We will certainly be discussing uh, those semifinals and ideally a final if and when the U.S. makes it there. But, Joe, let's take one more break, and then let's answer some questions about this U.S. team and the men's team uh, back soon to do just that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. You probably never left. Hopefully you didn't leave. Joe, we've got a few questions uh, to rattle through relatively quickly uh, because I think initially I had planned for this to be segments two and three, but we went a little bit long with the U.S. women, and I'm good with that. Let's get to some questions. Uh, from Shreyas Romani, based on what you've seen so far, how do you think the U.S. women's national team matches up against the front runners at the Euros? Competitive games between them are rare outside of big tournaments, and there is little overlap at club level between their players. So I think they match up okay. Yep. I think based off of the context we have in the past, I know the U.S. didn't thrive at the Olympics. They end up in third. That is, generally speaking, pretty even with a lot of the other giants in, in global soccer. You think about the only European team that finished ahead of them, I believe, was Sweden. Shoot, now I can't remember who lost to Canada in the, in the Olympic final. That's, that's my bad. But either way, there was one European team ahead of them in that tournament. I think the U.S. generally looks okay. Now, I'd be lying, and if you've listened to this show so far, you know I don't think either Taylor or I are feeling all that great about this U.S. team right now. And it doesn't seem like Vlaco is feeling great either. I think he'd prefer to not go up against a European giant like England or Germany or Spain or whoever in the, in the next few months or so. But I think the U.S., with the talent they have, still matches up fairly well. Now it's up to the U.S. to figure out how do they match up a lot better against these teams. Yeah, I think if we were recording this show, answering this question before England beat Norway 8-0, uh, I, would, I would feel pretty okay with things. It feels like, yeah, it's going to be some very strong opposition, and the United States tends to raise their game or play the game that's needed to get past them. I England has me a little bit nervous for how good they looked against Norway. I think Germany and Spain would have me a little bit nervous to play against, and France, as always, would. But I think... That's to be expected as the women's game continues to grow. You're going to get teams that are as strong or challenging for the United States, maybe even stronger one day. Uh, but I, I think in the end, if the United States were at the Euros, I think they still go pretty far in that tournament too. Uh, unfortunately, they cannot be. We'll have to wait till next summer. Or, yes, next summer's World Cup. I'm now convinced that all World Cups are in the fall. That one will be in the summer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I think they would be fine. Uh, 
give them a year to prep for it, and I think they'll be just fine against European opposition at the World Cup. Hopefully, we don't have Latko saying, yeah, Hopefully. we're not quite ready in the lead-up to Yeah, that give tournament. us another year. Give yeah. us till 2024. One more year. One more, yeah. year. <laughs> One more global pandemic, and we'll be ready. Uh, right. A question about the knockout rounds from Calvin Lezoom. With Costa Rica and Canada moving on from Group B, who are players we should know beside Canada's Sinclair, Fleming, and Quinn from their squads? So we're moving uh, some of the big names from Canada, Joe. Who are some people to know? Sure. So I'll start with Costa Rica, who the U.S. plays on Thursday in the semifinals, the second team from Group B. I have a couple of names here. One is Raquel Rodriguez. Uh, She's right-footed, plays for the Portland Thorns. She can crash the box and create problems. That's kind of what she does. I I really don't know. I don't have a great concept of the level of this Costa Rican team. I think realistically the U.S. has a lot more ability and, and should win this game relatively handily. Not that they will, but I think they are fully capable of doing that. So I'm not sure how much we'll see from Raquel Rodriguez, but she is someone that I think is worth highlighting and worth paying attention to as you watch Costa Rica play, whether they're attacking in transition or, or have little bits of possession. I would say keep your eyes on Raquel Rodriguez. And, and one other is Catherine Alvarado, who scored just this unreal goal. Taylor, I don't know if you saw this. Unreal banger against Trinidad and Tobago. She plays a little deeper in midfield, uh, has a really strong right foot, and it looks like she takes the penalties for Costa Rica as well. I don't know how much she'll get to use that strong right foot against the U.S. That's kind of up for the U.S. to decide in all honesty. But, man, I think she can do some damage and she can be fun to watch. So Rodriguez and Alvarado are the two players that I would spotlight here for Costa Rica. Taylor, anything else on Costa Rica before we look to Canada? Uh, sticking with Rocky Rodriguez for a second, she sure. would be the one, uh, and, it, and it goes to our concerns about the number six spot for the United States, she would be one because I think in the second half against Canada, uh, they, they had a 3-4-3 shape. She was the kind of central attacker who would then drop deeper and try to kind of get the ball in the middle of the field when the rest of the uh, Costa Rican midfield had occupied Canada's. And so how the United States is able to sort of deal with her making those runs and limiting her impact on the game, that will go a long way towards, I think, the United States getting the result they want. So I think you're absolutely wise to spotlight Rocky Rodriguez, Joe, for Costa Rica. What about for Canada? Who should we be looking at there? So I think Calvin did a good job of naming some of mm-hmm. Canada's really real, real impact players, especially in the attack there. One other player who I, I think has a really big role in how Canada play is Janine Becky. Uh, so she mm-hmm. plays for the Portland Thorns in, in WSL, and she played for Man City before that uh, over in England. Really good speed, good right foot, good crosser of the ball, and she likes to attack from wide. She will drive to the end line and cut the ball back for Christine Sinclair, for Fleming. I mean, she is a danger on that right side, and it's going to be up to whoever's defending on the left if the U.S. get to this final, which is the only place they can meet Canada. It's going to be important for those players to be dialed in, for the U.S. not to give Becky much space. But she's dangerous on that right side. She's been dangerous for Man City in the past. She's been dangerous in the NWSL in the past. She is certainly someone to keep your eyes on as you're watching Canada. Maybe that's in their semifinal against Jamaica or potentially against the U.S. in the final. Uh, she should not be overlooked in, in a, a group of Canadian players who has a lot of talent. Yep. Uh, two other names for me. Uh, Jordan Heidema, uh, obviously a known quantity, but still very, very young. She comes on in uh, at halftime, I think, in that game versus Costa Rica and is just a very good player. She's just like comprehensively good and does so many things so well that I think she just ups the quality of the team when she's involved and is a very dangerous player if you don't do a good job of tracking her at all times. And one way you can lose track of a player is when uh, goal kicks are restarted quickly and the goalkeeper's distribution is on point. And I saw that as well from Kaylin Sheridan, that she was... There seemed to be an emphasis on get the ball back in play, don't let the rhythm slow down against Costa Rica, keep them under pressure as much as we can. And then also, I saw her doing a very good job of when Costa Rica would set up a little bit higher to sort of nullify that build out. She would then find people on the touchline or on the sidelines uh, with some really good distribution. So I think, uh, obviously, capable of of making some saves, stopping some shots, Kaylin Sheridan, but also very good in her her distribution. So those are two other names I would say we should be paying attention to in the knockout rounds. I love it. And and Canada's a good team. You know, they they are the reigning Olympic champions. They are Mm -hmm. very capable of beating anyone in the world right now. I'm, I'm really hoping we get that game, Taylor, because I think it's going to be a really good test and a, a really difficult matchup for the U.S. in a lot of ways if, again, the U.S. makes it past Costa Rica. 
another one, Joe, from Julia Ferre. Uh, what are your thoughts on this tournament versus the many months-long process of qualifying for the men? How does the UN, U.S. women's national team find more opponents that will challenge them in the way Europeans would? Are more difficult friendlies the only solution? Let's take that in two parts. Let's start with sure. what are your thoughts on sort of having a big qualifying tournament instead of a months-long process? I don't mind the qualifying tournament. I think it's kind of fun and it puts a lot of focus on the teams at, at a given time and it makes it into a really big event, which I think is useful. I don't love, Taylor, that the U.S. or that all these teams qualify for the World Cup and the Olympics at the same time in the same tournament. It feels difficult for a, a casual observer to dive into and really understand, wait, what what's happening? Not only are you just trying to win this tournament, but, but you do what along? It just feels a little unnecessarily complicated in certain ways. And I also, I, I just think the consequences for having a bad tournament with how brutal tournament soccer is and how unforgiving it often is, having the consequences for a team like Mexico that has a, a really poor showing up until that final game really is is brutal. And it wouldn't be my first choice. I think there are logistical reasons for why it is beneficial to do something like this. But I, I like parts of what we're seeing down in Mexico right now, but, but maybe it's not the absolute best way that this could be done. What do you think, Taylor? I I would agree entirely. I think there are probably financial reasons for why they're doing it this way. I'm guessing that many of the women's programs in the state they're in aren't well-funded enough to have flights all over the place and uh, hotels all over the place and make it that big, long process. So it is a a more cost-effective solution to do it all in one go. Uh, And so it makes sense. I like the tournament. I would say atmosphere, even though there hasn't been a ton of atmosphere, and that's one of the major knocks that I've seen from this competition so far. Uh, But I think on the men's side, I also like World Cup qualifying because it allows you to sort of have a natural evolution in your roster. With this one, you sort of like you're playing all your games at once, you've got your squad in there, maybe you can make some changes as you need to, but really it, it's just sort of you know who's going to be there. It, it caters teams who I think know their identity and know how they want to play or at least have a very good idea of their player pool and who will be in there. Whereas I think when you have a longer qualification process, it allows you to bring in players who've kind of gotten hot in the right moment or are doing new things with a team that maybe could fit in or have had time, as Timothy Weah did, to kind of learn what's being asked of them, learn what the coach needs, uh, watch some footage, review some games, and then come in and sort of elevate their performance. I think a longer-term approach to qualifying allows you to have a more natural evolution. So I, I lean towards longer qualifying, even though tournaments are always fun. In terms of finding higher-quality opposition, I think we could still see, like, I guess they're friendlies, but those sort of She Believes Cup tournaments, and I think we'll probably get a couple of those between now and the start of the World Cup, where we do have... It's competitive in the sense that it's a tournament, but ultimately it's a series of friendlies played in rapid rapid succession, which I think prepares you for a more competitive, more demanding tournament. So I think that's probably the way to kind of find more competitive games that are actually competitive instead of just friendlies. I don't I don't really have an answer to the second yeah. part of Julia's question. I, it's a good question. And I, I think really what we've seen is that U.S. soccer doesn't have a great answer to that question right now. The one thing that's clear is I, I think there's a ton of value in the U.S. finding and playing better teams on a regular basis. The, the quality that the U.S. has played since the Olympics straight up just isn't really enough to prepare the U.S. for the highest levels. It, it really just isn't right now. And I don't know the solution to that. As European women's soccer is growing and they're playing more games amongst themselves, it is getting more difficult to find windows in particular to play the best teams on the other side of the Atlantic. And, and I don't know the solution for that logistically. I, I think continuing to try to schedule the best friendly opponents that you possibly can is a huge part of this. I think teams still want to play against the U.S. There's a a huge draw in that, but it needs to be more, and the U.S. really benefit, and I think a lot of other teams in the world would benefit from playing the U.S. I don't know how you solve that problem, but Julie, I think you're right. The U.S. does need to figure out how to solve it. Uh, I just wish it was a little bit more straightforward than it probably is. All right, Joe, two more questions. These are about the U.S. men's program. We can get through them Relatively quickly, I think. Ed Ritter, how much does a run dumping their manager actually matter? Uh, let's just stick with that one. Let's stick with that part of the question. 
So this is to give some context here. Dragan yep. Skocic, I believe, is the pronunciation. Pronunciation, uh, Croatian manager who was coaching Iran, uh, was fired recently, and there have been a ton of problems in the Iranian uh, national team picture right now on the men's side. Issues uh, not getting friendlies played, uh, players being unhappy with management and with the federation. They lost uh, a friendly recently to Algeria, and that was not even Algeria's first choice group. And apparently, all of those factors were enough to push them over the line. It sounds like some players are pushing for. Uh, a more familiar name to be brought back in as head coach. I don't really think this makes a huge difference for the U.S. It doesn't seem like things were particularly function- functional with Iran before Skocic was fired, and I don't think they'll be particularly functional with a different manager in charge. It's not like uh, Dragon had implemented some sort of really high-quality tactical uh, system that he, only he knows how to play and only he can instill that knowledge into the players. They, they kind of played a, a pretty standard style they they like transition they'll, they'll happily ping the ball around a little bit but it's not this really detailed positional play I don't think he had done a ton in terms of instilling really detailed concepts into this team they still have quality Iran still has quality they have good players who can who can do damage against anybody in the world I don't think this drastically changes Iran standing in that group at the World Cup along with Wales England and the U.S. Taylor what, what do you think yep I'm right there with you. I, I think if this had happened a month before the tournament, then there's going to be a much bigger impact because you don't just have the time to get the team playing the way the new manager wants them to. I think with the gap they do have, even if they don't have a ton of friendlies, I think there's more of an opportunity for text messages and for just like off-ball conversations about what the expectations are and how they're going to play. I, I don't think it will have too big of an impact aside from if the kind of instability continues, then maybe that bleeds into their World Cup preparations and the World Cup itself. But yeah, overall, I think new manager will come in and uh, do manage new manager things, and maybe they play more defensively to start because that's always kind of the safer way to go. So maybe that's the impact. But aside from that, I don't think we'll see a wholly different Iran by any stretch of no. the imagination. Final question, Joe, comes from Wendell G five. Um, it's a good one. How much of the explosion in young USMNT talent in Europe is due to the improved player pool, and how much is due to more acceptance in Europe of the idea of signing young Americans? Is it 50-50? Is it 75-25? Is it some other fraction entirely? Uh, I, I think both factors are certainly involved, and Wendell G5 is very right to point that out. I think there is a, a very much an improvement in this U.S. player pool. On the men's side, the talent is getting better, or at least we have seen better talent come out recently, which is also changing the perception of European teams signing young American players. I don't know. This is kind of a chicken-and-the-egg situation. Yep. It, it's hard to say, <laughs> and I'm guessing it thing. very much depend, it, it depends on, on which European team you're talking about and which people are involved. Because there's going to be some folks that are just now realizing, hey, those Americans can actually play. And I think in that case, there is a very high percentage that goes towards the perception changing in Europe and that being a catalyst for more players to come over. But then there's also the fact that U.S. players are better. Like This is the most talented U.S. player pool that has ever existed, right? I mean, that is pretty clear at this point. And that is a huge part of getting some of these players over to Europe. So in terms of assigning a percentage, I probably lean towards... U.S. players just being better as a, a as the majority percentage, maybe that's seventy five percent, and we want to give twenty five to Europe. But I, I think Wendell, you're spot on. There is a certain percentage to be div- to be divided both ways. I probably lean towards the majority being on the bettering of the talent pool, but I I really could be convinced otherwise in specific cir- circumstances and situations. Yeah. I, I'd go I'd go seventy thirty in favor of the talent pool improving. And uh, but I think you're right, Joe. I had ch- chicken or the egg sort of situation here because I think. <laughs> (laughs) it's talent pool improves a player goes and does well there's more acceptance of signing americans so then maybe teams are more inclined to do that which means more americans are going to get opportunities which means more americans keep playing which means more americans get better which means more americans go abroad which means more european teams like those americans going abroad and think they're doing well and it kind of becomes this cyclical relationship it's just i have a hard time giving a 50 50 split to a bunch of Americans working really, really hard, a bunch of coaches working really, really hard to improve the technical side of the game, to make them more tactically adept. Uh, I, I can't give that equal equal share with like, oh, oh, you guys are good? Okay, we'll sign more of you. One of those is way less less labor intensive than the other. So I would say it's sure. 70% improved talent pool, 30% European clubs recognizing not just the ability of young Americans, but also the value in signing young Americans for what is still relatively cheap figures, and then being able to sell them on for much, much more down the road. I think that's also a pretty big appeal as well. 
Slap the TSS stamp of approval on that. There we go. 7030 it is. That is final. I'm with it, Taylor. There we go. All right, Joe. Well, we'll slap the seal of approval on that. Hopefully, listeners will slap, slap the approval of them on this episode. Woo! We're getting to the end. It's <laughs> Do we want loose. that? I'm not sure we even want. There's too much slapping in there. Nah, yeah, yeah, no I, slapping. I'm, I'm afraid. A, a, a gentle thumbs up of approval. How about that? Okay. Um, Sounds good. Rest of the week, we're going to have a look back at the Women's Euros so far. Tomorrow, that will be myself and Mr. Graham Ruffin. We're going to do some Lister questions, some Soccer 101. There will be an allocation disorder later on in the week. A busy schedule in in what was supposed to be a not busy summer. Uh, But Joe, thank you very much for taking the time to talk out the U.S. women and a little bit U.S. men with me today. You got it, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all so much for joining us. We will talk to you all very soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.